Welcome to Scaling Up, the podcast for water treaters by water treaters, where we're scaling up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. Hi, everybody. Trace Blackmore here, the host of Scaling Up. And I have to say one of the coolest benefits of hosting this show is being able to speak with some very influential people. Our guest today is Captain David Marquet of the United States Navy. He had one of the most amazing jobs in the world. Think about it. I just play with water all day. He lives surrounded by water all day. He commanded a nuclear-powered submarine. I actually had the pleasure of meeting David about three years ago at a business conference that we were both at, and he was the speaker. And by the way, I asked him how I should address him, and he very humbly said, well, David, of course. So I am reluctantly referring to him as David, and I'm sure you're going to hear I revert back to Captain Marquet quite often. Did I mention that he's a submarine captain? So cool. As you can gather, I am fascinated with submarines. But I am also a huge fan of the book that he wrote. It's called Turn the Ship Around. And it's one of my favorite books. Actually, it's my second favorite book outside of the seven habits of highly effective people. I know you've heard me talk about the seven habits several times on Scaling Up. Well, Turn the Ship Around is a book that shows how you can apply the seven habits of highly effective people. And it's a true story. It illustrates his story of how he was assigned to the highest performing submarine in the fleet, only to be reassigned several weeks before he was to take command to the lowest performing submarine in the entire fleet. So Turn the Ship Around chronicles how he took this lowest performing submarine, the USS Santa Fe, and turned it around into the highest performance evaluation in the history of the Navy. Amazing turnaround. He did it with what he calls a leader-leader mentality, not the leader-follower which is typically how the Navy, how the military gets things done. It's an amazing story. I'm really looking forward to speaking with Captain Marquet. So I hope you enjoy my interview with a true hero, Captain David Marquet. My lab partner today is Captain David Marquet of the United States Navy, retired. Captain Marquet wrote one of the best books in my library, Turn the Ship Around. And Captain Marquet, I'm so excited to talk to you today, hear a little bit about your story and why you wrote the book. Thank you for coming on Scaling Up. And how are you today, sir? I'm good, Trace. How are you? Doing very well. And I know initially you you asked me to call you David. I'm going to try to do that. But you you were a captain of a nuclear submarine. I think that's the coolest job out there. Maybe one notch below astronaut, but it is way up there. That's just amazing. No, no, no. You got it wrong. It's way above astronaut. Astronaut, you sit there, man. (laughs) I got it wrong. I apologize. No, no, that's important too. How did you come to be in the Navy out of curiosity? Well, I grew up in the 70s in America. I grew up in New England and the 70s, if anyone was there with me, everyone will recognize that as basically a giant bummer. 
And we were in this conflict with the Soviet Union and inflation was going crazy and the Iranians took our hostages. And I was this geeky kid on the math team. I, you know, I spent my afternoons on math team and chess club. And I was like, well, well I'm going to do something about this. And I decided to go in the military because I really felt pretty strongly about what the Constitution said about how we should organize humans and, you know, you should be able to live your life without being told what job to have or who to marry or what religion to, you want to do, celebrate. So what's an introvert to do when they join the military? Well, you got to go in the submarine force because that's where you can hide. So that's kind of, I came up with this, <laughs> go to the submarine force. I'm going to be a submarine captain. It was kind of this crazy thing to say because I really had no, mil I had no idea what I was getting into. And we had no military really in my family. So it was sort of absurd, but, I went down the path and letting the little that you know, I ended up being a submarine captain, but it was, <laughs> I learned something along the way. You learned a lot of things along the way, and you were thankful to share them in your book. I definitely want to want to talk about that. Uh, Turn the Ship Around is a, a book that you published how long ago? Uh, it came out in 2013. So since 2013, you have told people how to turn their own ships around. And uh, I'm going to have links on my show notes page to how you can get copies of this book. And I, I highly recommend that. But before we get to that, let's talk about how you were preparing for the Olympia. And then something happened. Yeah. So the leadership model that we had and... The leadership book that I had in 1981 at the Naval Academy basically says leadership is the art and science of directing people's thoughts, plans, and actions. Directing. And it's a model of leadership, which I now call a leader follower. And it, or it's also, if you think about a two-by-two two matrix where there's know it, don't know it, tell it, don't tell it. You want to be, obviously, in the know-it-tell-it quadrant. In other words, you know all the answers and you give all the orders. And this was the model of leadership. And it's so pervasive that we really don't even um, question any other models. We just say, oh, that's how it is. Of course there needs to be leaders and of course there needs to be followers. And I think I basically what I learned was, yeah, you need leaders and you need followers, but in a much different way than way this construct has a design. So obviously you, I, I'm trying to remember, I want to quote properly. You took a, a submarine that was getting performance scores that were among the lowest in the fleet to a state where the Navy issued the highest performance evaluations in all history. Right. So here, yeah. So here's what happens. So I, I'm getting ready to go. Yeah, you know, I get promoted, promoted, promoted. I'm been selected to cap, be a captain of a submarine. I'm super excited. I get training for a year to go to that ship because you got to know everything. This is the know it, tell it model, right? You got to know all the answers. And then I got vectored off to another ship, the worst performing, worst morale ship in the Navy because the captain quit a year early and the Navy hadn't prepared a guy. So they said, Marquet, you're going to the Santa Fe and you got two weeks. So I, I go over there and the Santa Fe was a different kind of submarine than the, than the ship I was trained for. And it was one of the newest ships had different equipment. 
And I'm walk on board, and I'm looking at all this stuff, and I'm like, I really don't know this gear, but the the structure of the leader gives the orders, and the crew follows them was so strong that we tried that. Of course, it didn't work because I didn't know the details of the ship, and so almost immediately I made a mistake and gave an order that you couldn't do, and this really rocked me back on my heels. And my in- instinct was to tell the guys, "Hey, you guys need to speak up and take initiative, be proactive. If what I say is wrong, talk back to me." That's what I'd seen, and again. But the problem is that's pushing the responsibility onto other people and saying. Is a view of the world that the problem is everybody else and not you. And finally, it dawned on me that the problem was really me. And instead of me running around telling people what to do, I just needed to stay quiet. And so I now view it as the leader actually leans back. Instead of leaning into your subordinates and they lean into the team below them and they lean into the team below them. The leader actually leans back and creates the space for the team to lean up forward into you. But it always starts with the leader's behavior and the leader leaning back. And it's very unnatural and it's aggravating and it's slow and it goes against the way your body is wired. It'll feel wrong. But when you actually lean back and invite your team to lean forward, once you get that going... Katie, bar the door. Because not only will performance go way up and morale go way up, but you end up creating more leaders this way. And so that's the story. You know, how I learned to lean back as a leader uh, in a way that was safe for me and the team and how they leaned into me. And we ended up going from one leader and 134 followers to 135 leaders. And it was awesome. I'm thinking in all of the business owners that are listening to this podcast and they're thinking, no, I have to do leader (laughs) follower mentality. And when you look at what you did on a submarine where where if something goes wrong, it is catastrophic. How do you, I know, because I know you work with people like this. How do you convince people like that, that they do need to lean back so others can lean forward? I never convince anybody. And that's not my job. Like, if you don't fundamentally, if you can't see that there would be a better world, if you have to, if you could stop telling your people what to do all day long and they came to you and said, here's what I intend to do, I, I can't convince you that. So I'm not going to convince you. But if you say, I see the value in that, how do I do, how do I do it? Can I get some stories and help? That's where we go. So here's the deal. When you do this leaning back thing, you you ever sit in one of those lawn chairs, right? And it's got this like all these little notches. (laughs) This just came to mind. And you're like, you're going to lift it up, but you're too lazy to actually get out of the chair and and put it where you want and then get back in the chair. So you're trying to like lift it up and lay it, set it back while you're still sitting in the chair. I don't know. I do. That's what I do. And then it misses and you go slam way back. You ever happen to you? Anyway. I have had that happen. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, you don't want to do that, right? You don't want to do that. So what it is, is you lean back notch by notch by notch by notch in a very slow and incremental way because that's otherwise you get this really messy chaos. And I lean back too far. And I tell the story in the book about some of the mistakes that I made. But when you lean back notch by notch, the team then can lean in bit by bit. Here's the thing. You want to be firm in how the team interacts, which will allow you to release control of the what. 
like what are we going to do and what are, what are our products and how we're going to price them. You want to get out of that business. Let your team do that. You want to be in the business of deciding how we interact, deciding. So in other words, I'll give you an example. In a meeting, your job as a leader is not to try and drive a decision. It's to make sure that everybody's voice is heard because when you hear everybody, even the quiet person, they may be thinking different from you, but the problem is it's not really safe or they're quiet or they're an introvert and they don't speak up. So you need to notice that and say, well, let's hear from Trace. You know, do you see it different? Yeah, well, as a matter of fact, I do. Great. Let's t- tell us about that. We call it embracing the outliers. And so the point is you want to be doing that rather than whatever driving your agenda, which is what most people get trapped into. Well, I know in our earlier conversation, before we started recording, you were talking about how this process can be very slow. And I'm sure that there were times that you could have just gotten something done. You could have ordered it. It could have been done, but you would have slowed down the entire model that you were trying to create. How did you resist the urge to do that? Yeah. So... What happens is your people come up to you and say, hey, what do you want us to do? You know the answer or you think you do. And you can say, well, just turn left, turn whatever. And uh, things could be happening again. And I would resist that and say, well, what do you think? If you were me, what would you do? Those kind of questions. And it was very frustrating. I had this poster inside my stateroom behind the door. So no one knew it was there except for me because when people came into the stateroom, the door was open. But when I was in there by myself, I would close the door and I could see the poster. And the poster basically had me and it was, it was me and my dog and the dog standing in front of me. There's eight pictures in a row of the dog standing. And I'm saying, sit, 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 sit. And then the last one, the dog is sitting and says, I say, it says, good dog. I didn't want the crew to see it because I didn't want them to think I was thinking of them as, as dogs, which I wasn't. Sure. But the point, the point is you got to just relentlessly uh, repeat the message. And I can't tell you how many times when I was – and I did, you know, especially if I were tired or hungry or stressed out myself, you know, I'd, I'd fall back into the old way of doing business. But you don't develop leaders that way, right? You say, oh, do this. Like, you're not developing leaders, and you just trap yourself into this thing. Next week, you're going to have to answer the same question, and the week after, and the week after. And I say, I got to get out of that. I got to get out of this process of having to answer questions. I need to create an independent thinking team. And it only comes when you keep your mouth shut and see what, how they would think through a problem, which – so it was this image – of a future that was brighter than the present because I had thinkers all around me that motivated me along with my poster, which reminded me to stick with the program and not give up. In your book, you mentioned one of the techniques to do that was the I intend to. Can you speak around that? Yeah. So that for us was a very powerful word. And when I look at organizations, Almost every organization I look into is what I call a permission-based organization, which is if you don't get permission to do something, you can't do it. The the default is no. So if you send an email to your boss and there's no response, do you do it or not? Oh, no, no, I couldn't do it. And so what we did is we just said, 
I never said the word be empowered or anything like that. I just said, just say these words. I intend to. So the team would start coming up to me and saying, I intend to submerge a ship. I intend to load a torpedo. I intend to this. I intend to prepare for that. And the difference is they, so now they, they own it. And rather than me walking around and telling them, do this, do this, do this, I'm leaning back and they're coming to me. Here's what they intend to do. So they own their jobs. And the other thing is it creates a bias for action because when you say, I intend to do this, then the default is it happens, not it doesn't happen. And that's scary because you own it and there's responsibility from the team side. And it's also scary from the boss side because my team might send me an email now and I'm on a 15-hour flight to Sydney. Uh, usually, you know, our default is basically 24 hours, right? I get 24 hours to veto something. But I don't worry about checking my email because if I don't check it, it doesn't slow down the work. They, they're off doing it anyway, right? So I, I'm not one of these guys in a meeting like, oh, I got to check my email because my whole team's waiting on me and nothing's happening about me telling them, you know, go approved, approved, like that never happens. So this, this idea of intent is very powerful. And then by practicing the language, the team then be felt empowered, became empowered, but we always say we act our way to new thinking. So you don't start with a concept of empowerment and then hope something changes. You start with the, the physical language and that rewires our thinking. We act our way to new thinking, not think our way to new action. A lot of people are listening today. They may be business owners or they may work for somebody. In order for a leader follower to change to leader leader, does it have to come from top down or is there something that somebody can do, a subordinate can do to get that started? I think it's a lot easier if it comes from top down. I tried something like this when I was in the middle of the organization and it didn't really work. Partly, mostly because I really didn't know what I was doing and I didn't understand that when you give people control, you got to really beef up the technical competence. You can only give as much control as they have to technical competence to handle and the organizational clarity for making decisions. I don't really understand that. I kind of blamed it on exactly what you said. Well, I wasn't the boss. My boss is a jerk. My boss, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Because basically I'm an optimist and I've seen it, uh, but it's generally been someone who's like the head of a division or something like that and they have to create some sort of change process because it always starts with the leader's behavior but the way the team interacts is something that everyone gets involved with the way do we welcome new people or do we put them through some hazing process do we do we respect people who think differently than us and see things differently and we are curious about how they see it or do we just convince them that they're wrong these are things that every team member can do and that's why it's important that everyone get involved with this okay one of my favorite lines from your book is when you say a little rudder far from the rocks is much better than a lot of rudder close to the rocks. I actually have that on a poster in my office. I'm a fan of uh, the seven habits of highly effective people. You actually met him and I want to I talk about uh, meeting Dr. Covey, but I think it's the best example. And when I teach seven habits, I use your quote as, as how to look at habit one. So with that in mind... 
how are you judging when you're trying to give somebody the authority to make decisions, but yet we're getting too close to that rocks? When, when does the danger level amp up where you have to step in? And if you step in too quickly, you're taking away their power. Yeah. So number one is my problem would be, I would say, if I hadn't given the team enough time and I was in crisis, there's not enough time at that point to then ask the team, oh, what do you guys think about this? Because the moment is on you and you have to make decisions. And so now you're, you've lost the opportunity to train your team. So it really is on, incumbent on you to, to look further downrange and say, oh, you know, in two days we're going to be entering port. We're going to be driving into uh, Pusan, Korea. Okay, well, I'm going to put a new officer up there. I need to, you know, I, I need to give that person heads up so that they can study the charts so that they can be in charge beforehand. And if you don't plan for far enough out, then you never get the opportunity. But there are a couple other behaviors that I think allow the team to have more authority. So, for example, I call it think out loud. So you're, let's say, so this happened to me. I'm teaching my daughter to drive. She's driving. I'm sitting in the passenger seat. I don't know what she's, it's quiet in the car. I see a family playing. I see a car coming down the street. I see a stop sign. And I keep saying, hey, Emily, do you see this? You see that? And she's getting frustrated. Yes, of course that. But I don't know that she's seeing it. She's not saying anything. So think out loud is, sounds like this. I see the family. I'm, I have the right of way. But if they run out in the street, I'm ready to stop. I see the stop sign. I'm, I see a car coming. And you're just sort of just narrating what you see. Now, it's not the normal thing. We, we don't normally do this because once people learn to drive, you don't need to do it. But in that learning process, it allows me to then be quiet because I knew she saw all these things. And we tend to get defensive and close up and resist scrutiny a lot of times when what you really want, which result means your boss has to ask more questions. And it's just a sort of negative self-fulfilling thing versus like open the doors and say, Here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I see. Here's what I see. And that allows your boss to be quiet and have give you give you more um, distance than if you don't. So there's these different tools you have that allow the team to then sort of act in the same way, but in a way that's safe and allows you to still veto the decision if you think it's really a problem. Well, I know you, in the book you talk about, you know, the I intend to submerge the ship. And then I think your people would say, you know, we're in the water we own. Yeah. Uh, every Everything is, you know, the valves are where they need to be. And I was not in the Navy. So that's the extent of, of what I remember of my reading. Mm-hmm. And but I say all that because. Was your goal to get to some point where you didn't have to ask any more questions, that they gave you enough information that you just said very well? Yeah, exactly. So so the first time, you know, someone comes up to you and says, I intend to submerge the ship. And let's say it's a junior officer. We haven't gone through this before. I ask them questions. That's part of it. It's not like I intend to submerge a ship. Okay, great. And then I walk away. No. And uh, I might ask them, well, this is the way it started. I would say, well, you know, is it safe? Are the hatches shut? Blah, blah, blah. And they would kind of get, you know, they go through that. And then why are we doing that? I ask them why, like why and why is this the right place and the right time? And they go through that. And I, then I would start saying, well, look, since I'm going to ask you this anyway, why don't you just make it part of your your blurb. I intend to submerge a ship. Hatches are shut. Here's why. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, great. 
Now, for new guys, that conversation might take five minutes because there's a lot about it, and I really am trying to understand their thought process. I want to say yes, but I really want to understand their thought process. And then the next time they do it, it might only take four minutes, and then you know, three, six months from now, like the engineer would come up to me, who a highly, highly competent officer, and he would just say, Catherine Antenna submerges ship. And sometimes he would do a little bit so that if people were watching him, they would know the right pattern. But it would be very, very short conversation because I would know from experience that he he knew all the things to check. And then, because uh, I would be spending my time on somebody else at that point. So the point isn't, the two things. One, when your team says, I intend to, you don't have to agree with it. That's why it's I intend to, not I've done it. Uh, <laughs> I did this. Well, that's over at that point, right? And the other thing is, if you're a team member and you go to your boss and you say, I intend to, that doesn't mean you get automatic carte blanche to do it. You want to, the word we use is invite scrutiny. So you say things like, so check my thinking on this. Like, make, what am I missing? Have I not, is there something I haven't thought about? Is this truly aligned with the organization's objectives? Like, invite those questions because that's what's going to result in your boss trusting you more and more and more and giving you more authority down the road. Not the sort of defensive, well, you know, why are you asking me that? Don't you trust me? Blah, blah, blah. That's not what you want. So that's that's what we think. And and then and then eventually you'll earn the right to go to your boss and say, This is what I intend to do, and your boss will say, Okay, fine, whatever, you know, I you know, it's on you. Got got it. Moving on. I am very pleased to tell you that we did this in our organization. And the, yeah. the magic is, and it was difficult. You, you talk about, I, I think I, I fell out of the chair you mentioned earlier a couple of times, but the magic was my guys were thinking in a train of thought that I wasn't in. And I actually learned from the process as they were. It was truly magical. Yeah. Well, thanks for telling that story. I mean, that's, that's the whole deal. That's the whole deal. The question is, is your company going to get better because your people are better doing what you tell them to do? Or are your company going to get better because you've unlocked the thinking and the creativity of all the people in your company? And I'm pretty much thinking it's going to be number two. Like, certainly that was it. It was that for me. We poll audiences on this and we get like a 90-10 response typically. Because you do need, for any business, we do need to maintain the discipline. We do need to maintain process discipline, and we do need to maintain certain rules, whether they're internet security, uh, client confidentiality, safety, you know, wear your steel-toed shoes and safety, you know, whatever it is. There are certain compliance things that we need. But we, so we need compliance over here, but over there, we need thinking and creativity. And so knowing when to flip back and forth is really the thing because you need both. But we think the bigger gap is on the thinking side. Well, it definitely opened my eyes that problems that I thought were with people were with our procedures, not necessarily with our people. And they allowed and doing some of the things that you talk about in the book with the I intend to and, and think out loud. It allowed us to examine our processes and help our people not hurt our people because we had those processes. Yeah, that's really good. So the uh, Google did a study about what uh, creates the most effective team, and the number one determinant is the team interaction. 
not who's on the team or what positions they're in. It's like how they interact. And so this is where as a leader, you want to spend a lot of time. How are your people interacting? What are the meetings sound like? Are people being honest about, you know, if they see a problem, do they speak up or do they just keep it to themselves? That's what I'm talking about. And that's what you want to focus on on a leader. And then when you get that done, you, you can stop telling everyone what to do because they're involved, they're participating, they're telling you what they think. How do you write procedures that support that line of thinking? So there are procedures where you need to say, so here's a procedure, start up the diesel engines, apply lube oil for step one, lube oil, step two, start the engine, right? You don't want to do it in the opposite order. So there's a certain compliance thing there, but in compliance work, you want to give, you always want to give people the option to get out of it and say, I'm not sure this is right. Let's put the, push the pause button and put on our thinking caps. This is the purpose of the and on cord in the Toyota factories where the worker could pull it and say, hey, I'm having a problem. So number one, you can, you can inoculate the team against being trapped. We call it trapped in red work. We call this production work red work. Like I'm in production. I'm getting stuff done. I'm too busy getting stuff done to stop and think about whether it's, it's getting the right stuff done or whether I'm actually heading into a mistake. The second thing is we need to create an environment where if people feel like uh, they can ask a question and that it's safe to ask questions and it's safe to express dissenting opinions, we won't be ridiculed, we won't be told we're wrong, we won't be, you know, uh, laughed at at the water cooler or any of these kind of things. So that's what you want to be doing. Every time I read your book, and, and I don't read books twice often. I've read yours, I think, about eight times. Every time I, I go to work with somebody and we're talking about a personnel issue, and I do some consulting with some other firms, I always give them a copy of your book. As a matter of fact, I think I've – I can't even count how many copies of your books that I've given out. But it's such a good example of how to work with people. Anyway, the reason I say all this is every time I read it, I have certain questions that I've always wanted to ask you. You're on my show. I want to take advantage of it. Can I ask you some of these questions? Yeah. All right. So in the book, you mention uh, one of uh, your enlisted men. You called him Sled Dog. Yeah. He went AWOL. And he was a great guy, but the system was broken as far as he was concerned. It really wasn't an issue with him, but he was feeling the brunt of it. Uh, Maybe you can tell that story a little bit. But as far as my question, you decided to give him a pass for going AWOL. And by all means, it was the right decision based on what happened. But the immediate thought in your crew that, well, hey, I can make a mistake and the captain's not going to hold me accountable for it. How do you get past that? Yeah. So what happened was this is a really powerful lesson and story for me. We call it the leader fixes the environment, not people. 99.9% of the time, your people are trying to do the right thing, but they're operating inside a system which may actually be making it harder for them to do the right thing. So I had been talking about, quote, taking care of our people like most leaders and but not paying enough attention to the junior enlisted guys. And we had steamed from Pearl Harbor to San Diego, uh, which takes like a week. And uh, this guy, Sled Dog, had been standing watch six hours on, six hours off. And when you stand watch six hours on and six hours off, it sucks. You, you don't get any sleep. 
because the ship is set up for a one and three rotation. So we're running drills during the time when he's going to be sleeping. He's not sleep Anyway, so you pull in a port. He hasn't slept in 36 hours. Now, I don't know that. I haven't been paying attention to this individual guy. As soon as he pulled into San Diego, he, like, runs off the ship. He's like, F you guys, and I'm out of here. <laughs> he goes up to the on-base barracks and gets a room to go to sleep. He doesn't go to Tijuana or anything like that. So anyway, kind of comes out, gets reported to me. The guy's gone UA, and I gather up his leadership, his leadership team. I say, well, what's going on? They kind of explain this thing about being port and starboard, which I didn't notice. You know, I was walking around the ship. I didn't notice this guy was always on watch and whatever. And so I'm kind of sympathetic to the fact that we've deprived the guy from for sleep. And I said, well, where'd he go? Well, he's on the barracks. Well, why didn't he go to Teal? Like, you know, we'll go across the border. Is he really trying to go UA or just really just angry and needs some sleep? So I said, you guys did him wrong. You guys, because you, the supervisors were like six hours on and 24 hours off. They were getting plenty of sleep, but the junior guys were getting screwed. So I went up and I said, hey, so I found him. And I said, knocked on the door. He opens the door. He's bleary-eyed. I didn't totally let him off the hook. I said, listen, well, maybe I did. I said, listen, you come back to the ship tomorrow when Liberty expires at 7 in the morning. We're going to forget this thing. You don't. We're going to hunt you down to the end of your days. You know, your choice. <laughs> so I went back to the ship. And, of course, he showed up. I may I changed the rule, and the rule was that on the uh, duty rotation, the senior guys could not have a better duty rotation than the junior guys, and which was a big change from what we were. We were junior guys were getting hammered, and the senior guys lots of sleep, and the senior guys were really pissed off. They didn't think this was fair. Said they'd earned the right, whatever. I just like no, you're doing it. And I never approved the watch bill. I never said who's on duty, but I made this rule. And what happened was we very quickly got everybody three and three section and then four section, actually. So we're very efficient in terms of how we use the people. And we never had another person go UA. And I don't know exactly why or how it works, but I think the crew basically knew that... This was a special case that we, we the leadership, had screwed this kid and uh, we were making it right and that, but that they, they shouldn't expect, you know, a free pass on, on any kind of discipline problems. The discipline problem always result as a systemic issue. Like there's a systemic problem with your organization, which then results in discipline problems. That's why people are acting up 99.9% of the time. So leaders fix the environment, not people. If you got the right environment, the people will do the right behaviors. Also in the book, you talk about the three name rule <laughs> and you had a lot of eyes on you as you were trying to turn this ship around. And I, I was hoping you can tell us a little bit about what the three name rule was, why you did that. But my question is that you got commended because people were greeted with the three name rule. However, you knew that at best 10% of your men were actually doing the three name rule. So I know that had to be some sort of conflict where they weren't doing exactly what you asked them, but at the same time you were getting commended for it. So how did you handle that? 
Well, yeah. So th- there's two principles here. One is you act a way to new thinking. Uh, and we talked about that a little bit with the I intend to not think your way to new action. And you focus on the people who are getting it right. So what happened was I took over. I had two weeks. We were getting inspected the very first underway. Uh, we were we were going to go through this tactical inspection, and it was all all the signs were it was going to be a disaster. You know, the crew didn't know their jobs, morale was crappy, blah blah blah. It was going to be a mess. The captain didn't know the submarine, <laughs> and we did a little brainstorm about well, we want the crew to be proud of the ship. Now, the normal thing is like somehow give lectures. We're proud of the ship. You know, put some posters. This doesn't actually change anything. What would it look like if the crew were proud of the ship? Well, one of the, one of the things was that they would, when the visit, when the inspection team was on board, they'd say, "Oh, welcome aboard, welcome aboard the Santa Fe, Commodore Kenny. My name is Sled Dog." So those are the three names: your name, their name, and the ship name. We didn't really explain why. We just said, here's the new rule. When you see these visitors, you're going to meet them with these three names. Now, now that seems maybe in one sense incredibly micromanaging, but it was really sort of a structure of how we're going to operate. No one had ever told the crew anything like this before. So you had all these random interactions. Even though only a small proportion of the crew started doing it, eventually everyone was doing it. The whole crew got it. But at the beginning, it was only a small proportion. But it was enough to change impression in the minds of the inspectors. So as the inspectors were walking around the ship, they're having Santa Fe sailors come up to them. These are guys who before were shuffling their – they're like land of the zombies, like shuffling their fleet, looking at the deck. But now they're coming up to the inspector, and it didn't matter to the inspector. Like, they didn't sense or notice the nine people who didn't do it, but the one person who did. Hi, you know, welcome aboard, Commodore. Welcome aboard the Santa Fe, Commodore Kenny. My, my name is Sled Dog. You know, can I show you my watch station? Can I show you what we're doing here? You know, that made such a huge impression that the image was totally different. The feeling on the ship was totally different, and pretty much, you know, within a month or so, everybody was doing it. But the principle is we act our way to new thinking, and you know, don't give people lectures. Just just figure out what it is, and then practice the new behavior. And eventually, everybody will catch on because that's the that's the culture. Yeah, and then I would find when a guy when I saw a guy doing, I say, oh, you know, sled dog, thanks for you know, thanks for introducing yourself like that. That's all I would say for the nine people who didn't do it. I just didn't say anything. Like, don't focus on the people getting it wrong. Focus on the people getting it right. Uh, you mentioned the the USS Sunfish. Is that where you first got the idea of the leader leader mentality? Well, we didn't call it leader leader then, but that's where I first saw the power of of the leader just asking the team, the leader stating, "I intend to." to his boss uh, in my case, the the captain said, "Why don't I just say I intend to do the him?" It wasn't quite as institutionalized as what we ended up doing, but that's where I first saw this idea of intent and experienced it, and then it kind of went into hibernation for the next 10 years, but uh, I was able to draw upon that memory when I ended up with the on the Santa Fe. If that experience didn't take place on the Sunfish, 
what do you think would have happened on the Santa Fe? Would have you come to that conclusion of how to fix the situation? Yeah, I don't know. Who knows? I, <laughs> fair enough. Just, just curious. All right. Well, you had met one of my heroes, one of my favorite. Actually, this is why you're, you're, you're so cool to me. You, uh, you, you take two of my favorite books of all time. One, one of my favorite uh, fun read books is The Hunt for Red October. So you have that. And then The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, my all-time favorite uh, leadership book. And, and you just merged all those together. So that's why we were right. destined to have this conversation. Exactly. Uh, and what was it like to have him come on your submarine? You know, what was it like to meet him? So having Stephen Covey come on board was super cool. You know, I get this phone call. Like we're a year into this transformation. We're setting records for retention and performance and everything is going great. And we still, we don't know yet that we're going to create more leaders than any other submarine, but you know, the immediate results are pretty good. And uh, I get a phone call. Dr. Covey wants to ride the submarine. I was just like uh, a little kid. And I was like, oh my God, doctor. Because I was using seven habits on the ship. In a way, I was just applying seven habits at an organizational level. That's kind of how I thought about what I was doing. And he came on and we had some families as well. We, he spent a day on the ship. We submerged. We we drove from uh, Maui over to Oahu. It was super awesome. And he comes up to me near the end and he's like, I know what you're doing here. Well, first he says, this is the most empowering workplace I've ever seen. I was like, well, that was super cool. <laughs> and, then, and then he says, I know what you're doing. I'm like, really? Because I really don't know what we're doing. I mean, I, I know how you're doing this. And for me, there was this there was this ad hoc nature to what we were doing. And he put the structure behind it. He said, uh, well, when someone asks you to tell them what to do, you don't tell them what to do. You ask them what they see. Or you just simply take describe the situation, and then once they describe the situation, you ask them what they think, and then they may say, "Well, here's what I think's going on." You ask them what they what we ought to do, and then you ask them what they intend to do. Like so, and I was like, "Yeah," and so we we built we built this thing, which we now call the ladder of leadership, which is this structure by which you climb yourself up, or as the leader, you invite your people up. You know, it's a plus one thing, right? If they come in at level three, you you invite them to level four. That gave me the structure in my head so that I was talking to people and listening to them. That's the structure that I used. And it was, it's basically the thermostat for empowerment. It's very, very powerful. What would you say your biggest victory was for changing the leader follower mentality to a leader leader mentality on the Santa Fe? At the time, I thought it was all these awards that we got and the fact that we went from the worst to the best and performance and we set a record for how many people we kept in the Navy and all this other kind of stuff. Uh, but that's not what I think now. What happened was over the next 10 years, we had 10 officers from that wardroom got selected to command their own submarines and the same kind of, you know, highly disproportionate numbers in the enlisted rank went on the leadership positions. And this is what I think is the big, is the big win. It's creating an environment where your people can go off and express the leadership they have inside them and then go off and do great things, irregardless of you, you know, you've left or they've left. Doesn't matter. That's the legacy of leadership. 
Well, it truly was inspiring the the story that you share in your book and definitely having you on the Scaling Up program. This was phenomenal. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this. You're so enthusiastic. Thank you. Folks, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed interviewing Captain Marquet. I'll let you in on a little secret. I had 30 minutes with Captain Marquet. However, we reached 30 minutes and we were still having some really good dialogue. I didn't say anything and he kept going. So thank you very much for allowing me to do that, Captain Marquet. And I forgot I'm supposed to call you David. I told you I was going to have issues with that. I want to thank you for coming on the show and sharing all the things you did about your experiences. Now, we at Blackmore Enterprises use his book as a template for pretty much every procedure that we write. Our goal is to empower people and not tie people's hands just simply because we have a procedure. If you haven't read the book, I highly suggest it. I'll have an affiliate link on my show notes page, so you'll be able to go directly and get his book there. Also, David has a newsletter. It's called The Nudge. I've subscribed to it for several years. When he's out and about, he will find a sign. He even has one where he was in a men's room and he was inspired by something. So he'll have all these things that it will be like a little 20-second clip on something that inspires him and how you can use that to help empower people you work with. Highly recommend that, and I will have that link on my show notes page as well. I also think David would be a phenomenal keynote speaker for the Association of Water Technologies at our convention this coming year. So if you agree with me, let the leadership know that you think that that would be a great keynote speaker. And did I mention he's the captain of a nuclear-powered submarine? How cool is that? All right. So thanks for listening to the show. Without you listening to the show, I would not be able to interview people like that. Remember, be a better water treater tomorrow than you were today and have a great week, folks. 